They also busted Spilatro's hole-in-the-wall gang during a burglary, turned one of Spilatro's men into a government witness, and pressed indictments against Tough Tony himself. Spilatro was eventually murdered but was never convicted, in part because witnesses against him kept dying, and in part because of his lawyer, Oscar Goodman. Goodman says he never lost a case put together by Yablonski. He suspects oh, the FBI they... wanted to get him, too. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, they, they took plenty of shots, but the truth of the matter was uh, I never crossed the line. I, I was tough. I, I like to think I was tough. Uh, I represented my clients as vigorously as I could, but um, uh, never violated the law. Uh, I think in his mind, in Yablonski's mind, he had me as some kind of a consigliere rather than as a defense attorney. He was coming on uh, the uh, CNBC uh, Geraldo program. He had this little uh, plastic rat and he twisted the head off and said, this is what we do to rats. And I'm saying, my God, you know, what we do to rats? Why these pronoun we, you know? The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, we hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode with Soprano star Dan Grimaldi. It was an excellent interview, getting to know some of the insights on exactly how he got cast, thinking he was going to be basically a one-and-done player, and then luckily got called back and finished out the remainder of the series, and what a character he was for the remainder of that series, for sure, folks. But today, we have a first-ever type of interview here on crime and entertainment we have a former mayor what's that got to do with crime and entertainment you ask well i'll tell you because before he was mayor of las vegas nevada he was dubbed the mob lawyer of las vegas now when i say mob folks this guy represented the creme de la creme of organized crime he represented guys like meyer lansky nikki scarfo Herbert Fat Herbie Blitstein, Philip Leonetti, Frank Lefty Rosenthal. Now, that was the character that Robert De Niro played in the movie Casino. Tony Spalatro, who was the character Joe Pesci played in Casino. Uh, I mean, just, you know, the who's who in the mob world, especially out there in Las Vegas. And luckily, he sat down with me, Hollywood Wade, here on Crime and Entertainment. And we talked about how he, you know, grew up in Philadelphia, eventually moved out to Las Vegas, and how one case just kind of, you know, landed him this little role of Dub the Mob Lawyer. He'd done a fantastic job with that case and was really the go-to guy. And, I mean, he just, he did not lose. And, you know, he's got a very interesting story. He's very open and honest about everything that he did. And then later on, as we talked about, he went on to become the mayor of Las Vegas. And he served for not one, not two, but three terms. And that is the limit out there. Otherwise, he might still even be the lawyer today. But as luck would have it, you know who dethroned him, folks? His wife, Carolyn Goodman. That's right. Right after he left office, she took over. And she was also the mayor of the Las Vegas so they absolutely love the Goodmans out there in Las Vegas. We think you 
are absolutely going to love this interview. So let's get right into it here on Crime and Entertainment as we sit down with former mob lawyer and Las Vegas mayor, Oscar Goodman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. I have here a very special guest and a first guest of his caliber on this show. Please welcome to Crime and Entertainment, former lawyer, mob lawyer, as they dubbed him out in Vegas, and mayor and author. His book, From Mob Lawyer to Mayor of Las Vegas, Only in America. Please welcome to the show, Oscar Goodman. Oscar, how are you, my friend? I couldn't be better. Beautiful day out here, and I'm really enjoying the fact that uh, I have the privilege of being on the air with you. Hey, man, the privilege is all mine. I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man, for real. Um, are, we, are you in Vegas right now currently? I am in Vegas. I'm in my home. I just came back from seeing my wife, who's the mayor. Uh, she succeeded me after I had done uh, 12 years. Uh, mm-hmm. She has. Uh, uh, she's in her third term now. And uh, she needed a little bit of help with something. And I went down there to help her. Not that she needs my help, but um, uh, I hurried back to make sure I'm, I'm here with you. Okay. Now, you're originally a Philly guy, right? You're from Philly? Uh, absolutely. And the only thing I miss about it are the cheesesteaks. <laughs> I've been up there a time or two. And, uh, yeah, they do have some really good cheesesteaks up there. So let me ask you a question. What kind of led you to be a lawyer and then what prompted to move to Las Vegas? Well, I'm not sure uh, what prompted me to be a lawyer other than I was running out of other things to do and, or to be. And uh, I decided to go to law school at my wife's urging. Uh, we got married after my first year of law school, even though we had known each other for about three years before that time. And I couldn't stand law school. I, I really disliked it went to a nice little Quaker school outside of Philadelphia called Haverford College and loved that, loved every single day. I'm a non-athlete, uh, so uh, if you could walk at that school, they gave you a football helmet and uh, you were able to play football. So I had I had the best of college. I really enjoyed it and uh, I applied to the University of Pennsylvania, fine law school, but it was the time that uh, the Warren Court was involved with the civil rights and civil liberties and all those cases where you have right to counsel, uh, where they were suppressing evidence as a result of illegal searches and seizures. And that's what fascinated me. And yet all my classmates were interested in doing corporate work and just making money. And um, that was the least important thing to me. I wanted to be happy. So one day I walked down to uh, City Hall about a mile and a half from the law school. And I just walked in cold and said to the DA, I said, you know, I'd like a job as a clerk here. He says, well, we don't usually have clerks, but Arlen Specter, who subsequently became uh, United States Senator uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, he just won a big case against the Teamsters, a conviction, the first one in the country. Maybe he'll hire you. So I went in there and Arlen hired me, uh, made a dollar an hour, a 40 hour a week. The only guy ever to go, I think, to an Ivy League school to work that way. Uh, and Let me see something. I'm looking at this ugly puss here. <laughs> that's mine i'm referring to not yours and uh, oh I, I'm, I'm smarter than i look and uh, uh he, he was a great teacher and i, I loved uh, uh, working with him and for him and he well a wealthy widow was killed and the fellows who killed her took three hundred thousand dollars from under her mattress and brought it out to las vegas to launder it in the old sense of the word at the crap tables here mm-hmm. 
and they were arrested. And Arlen sent me out to talk to the police officers. And uh, then they came back to Philly and it was a cold, dreary, horrible November night. And they said, what are you doing here? Just as we said before, why would anybody want to live with that cold and the snow and the sleet? I said, where else is there? Uh, They said, have you ever thought about coming to Las Vegas? I said, people live there? I didn't know anybody (laughs) ever lived there. I thought they just stayed in the hotels. And they said, no, it's a great place for a young man to come to. And I went home that night and I said, sweetheart, uh, how would you uh, like to go to Las Vegas, the land of milk and honey? And she says, whatever you want, sweetheart. And that was it. Went out there and haven't had a bad day since. (laughs) Wow. Now, in your book, you talk a lot of kind of what you just said, like, you know, suppressed evidence, kind of backroom deals, corruption. Is that pretty much everywhere? Or is it more prevalent in Las Vegas? That's pretty much about wherever you look. Everywhere you look. Uh, my practice was such that um, they started calling me the mob lawyer because I represented people who were reputed mobsters. And mm-hmm. I didn't object to it because uh, if there was a mob, they certainly could pay for the best lawyers that money could buy. <laughs> And uh, I I took it as a badge of honor, to be quite frank with you. And the cases were all very, very interesting cases because uh, it was just at that breaking point in the law where uh, citizens uh, were beginning to uh, get rights and the government was having restraints uh, uh, on uh, on how they could do their business. And I won a couple of cases. I was pretty lucky. And I got that reputation and traveled all over the country representing people who were accused of crime. And uh, it, it was a, a terrific practice. Uh, after a while, I uh, represented some very, very famous or infamous alleged organized crime figures. Yes. Uh, Meyer Lansky, who was uh, supposedly the head of the nation's uh, uh, criminals uh, syndicate as far as finances were concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I represented, um, oh, uh, you name him, I represented him. I, I don't yeah. know whether you saw the movie Casino, but I played myself in the movie. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, I, I represented those people in real life. I mean, my part was actually very, very realistic and represented the person uh, who was portrayed by De- uh, Pesci and the uh, person who was portrayed by De Niro and uh, knew the uh, woman who was uh, uh, portrayed by Sharon Stone. And I loved it. I, re- I, I love the movies. I, I got a kick out of it. And uh, the movie came out. And this, this is what the realistic thing, what happens in real life. My mother called me, uh, my dear, sweet mother. And she said, Oscar, she said, I saw your movie and it's a good thing you're a lawyer. <laughs> I wasn't, get, wasn't getting any phone calls at all. The phone was dead. And uh, I, uh, I missed those movies. And I decided that uh, there's only one way I could be assured that I could get into the movies. And that is if I ran for mayor, because the city had to issue a permit for a film to be made here. And I was going to insist after I won that uh, uh, anybody making a, a movie would have to give me a part if they got the <laughs> permit. And that's what I went into uh, the office with that in mind. And as it turned out, I got a couple of parts and I've been a happy camper. Wow. Now, you, like you said, you've interviewed some of the, the top dogs here, if you will, of the alleged. I want to make sure we use that word alleged uh, members alleged of organized or, crime, alleged, alleged or reputed, alleged or reputed. Uh, like Either you said, way. you mentioned Meyer Lansky, uh, Tony Spilotro, who, like we said, was uh, Joe Pesci's, who he characterized in Casino. Lefty Rosenthal, who De Niro played. Uh, even guys like Nicky Scarfo. Um, you know, a lot of the top-notch guys. Who was the first mob guy that you represented? 
Well, I can't say he was a mob guy, but he was the brother of somebody who was a reputed mobster. A young man who wasn't even 21 at the time, he got arrested in Las Vegas for a Dyer Act violation. And uh, most people never even hear about a Dyer Act anymore. A Dyer Act is the way the government would uh, bolster their statistics. It was the a crime, all they had to prove was that a car was stolen in one state and driven across state lines to another state. And uh, invariably, when uh, uh, the arrest took place, there was somebody behind the wheel, and whoever that was was charged with stealing the car. And this young man uh, was uh, arrested, and he was going to be tried in Las Vegas. Very tough case because they found him behind the wheel. Well, uh, one day I get a phone call, and a um, fellow says on the other end of the line, this Goodman? I said, yep. He said, well, come over to such and such an address and I've got an envelope for you. Well, just the way he sounded, I was scared to death. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a coward exactly, but I'm not the bravest guy in the world. So I said to my wife, she's braver than I am. I said, sweetheart, take a ride with me, will you? <laughs> so we took, we took a ride to this fellow's home, went up to the door, knocked on the door. And, uh, he says, here's an envelope. And there are three dimes in it. I never heard that expression in my life. Well, I take it. And he, did. he said, you better win the case. <laughs> well, and we went around the corner. I said, sweetheart, uh, please stop the car. Let me see what I just got here. And I opened up the envelope and there were 30 $100 bills. And I had never seen that much money at one time in my life. And I said, I better win the case. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, the brother who paid me, who hired me, he came out and he watched me in action and uh, it, I, I could try the case a thousand times. I would lose it 999 times. I think the jury felt sorry for me. Uh, they returned a verdict uh, on the first day of trial. It was on Valentine's Day of 1967. And they, uh, the verdict was not guilty. Uh, well, he happened to know everybody in the gambling business. At that time, the mob, in quote marks, uh, they were really involved with uh, gambling all over the country. The only place where it was legal was Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. But they needed Las Vegas in order to get the, the line information, the sports differential. And there was a fellow uh, who got arrested who was a bartender at one of the hotels here. And he would call the line to all parts of the country. And the government had set up wiretaps. And they were intercepting these phone calls by him. And um, the... Uh, alleged mobster suggested to his friends who were arrested and being tried uh, that I represent this bartender. And I went down to Florida in the first legal uh, wiretap case in the United States. All the rest were illegal by the government before that time. And uh, once again, I moved for severance because my man was just a little, little fella in the, uh, in the scheme of things. And the judge would say denied, denied. Well, you never get used to hearing deny, but I said it enough. And he said, okay, send your client back to Vegas. I'm going to sever him, which means cut him out of the case. We'll go forward with the rest of the fellas. And uh, the other lawyers in the case said, look, you're a nice young guy. Why don't you help us around here? So I stayed there. All of the defendants who were on trial, they all found, got found guilty. But the word went out. There was this kid from Vegas who represented so-and-so, the bartender, and his client was found not guilty, which wasn't the case. He was just severed and they never bothered trying him again. But when the word like that goes out with a small group of people, uh, they interpret it the way they want to. And I got the reputation as winning the first wiretap case in the United States. Wow. Then I got lucky again. 
uh, on December 12th of 1970, a simultaneous raid took place in 26 cities around the United States, all based on wiretaps of uh, bookmakers. And because of the reputation I had, I was hired in 19 out of the 26. As a matter of fact, I had one case in South Carolina. And I, I'm not going to mention the fellow's name at this time, but uh, he hired me and uh, 18 other uh, people hired me. And I was sitting in my office going over all the papers. And if I had one case, this never could have happened to me. But I had 19 cases. And I'm not the neatest guy in the world. I put the <laughs> cases on the floor and I'm working off my desk and on the floor. And one of the clients comes in on one of the cases. He said, look at this. I said, wait a second, please, Marty. His name was Marty. I said, Marty, don't bother me. I'm working. He said, you better look at this. I said, look, you hired me to take care of the case. I want to take care of the case. I want to win the case. Let me alone. Let me. He says, you really want to see this? I said, okay, show me what the problem is. And he points out in each of these different applications, because the government had to get permission from the judge in order to have a wiretap, and they had to have an authorization. And a member of the Justice Department, or one of nine assistant attorney generals, had to sign the application. Well, it turns out that the signatures were different. So I, I called, uh, I had a deposition, first time this ever happened, I think where I had John Mitchell, Attorney General of the United States, in my office. And he was an arrogant guy. He was just an arrogant man, came in the office, had a pipe, and thought he was a big shot. And <laughs> I made him go through each one of these papers. I said, now, which one is he? Is it your signature? He said, none of them. I said, whose signature was it? He said, uh, well, it says Will Wilson. I said, is it Will Wilson's signature? Because they're all different. He said, I guess not, because they're all different. And I found out that somebody who was a secretary in the office was signing these things and willy-nilly having these wiretaps, which violates somebody's Fourth Amendment rights right off the bat, interfering with their uh, you know, ability to speak freely. And I got all 19 of the cases dismissed. So I was really a hot shot then. And from that point on, I represented a lot of interesting people. I represented a fellow who was charged along with Willie Harrelson's father of assassinating a federal judge, judge down in Texas and got lucky there too. And uh, my client uh, was the only one who was found not guilty. All the rest were found guilty. Uh, represented a federal judge um, uh, from Las Vegas who was charged with pretty heinous acts, uh, but uh, the government dismissed after we were through the first trial on that, got those dismissed. And ultimately tried uh, the case before the United States Senate, that very building that we saw on January the 6th, uh, you know, be, being raided. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also, I was told I was the first person who was not a, uh, a government uh, diplomat, so to speak, uh, or a famous person who argued on the Senate floor. So that was a great experience. And my practice just went along and along and along. And with that, of course, comes money. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I was charging a lot of money. I'll be the first person to tell you that. And the clients paid it gladly. And I took it gladly. And uh, it, was, it was a very good practice, but it was, um, I had done it. The cases were becoming repetitive. Yeah. So I said, uh, I, I really wasn't beginning to like myself anymore. I would look at it's not, not this, this is no beautiful face that you see here, but I, I, I didn't like myself when I looked in the mirror in the morning. And one day I said to my wife and four children, we were on a cruise in the Caribbean. I said, you know, I've done everything as far as the law is concerned. 
I think I'd like to do something different. They said, what do you have in mind, Dad? I said, I think I'd like to keep the system honest from the inside rather than knocking my brains out from the outside. They said, what do you have in mind, Dad? I said, I think I'd like to run for mayor. Well, uh, my, my family is a very democratic family, and we take a vote on anything that affects one another. My wife abstained. She didn't want any part of this. <laughs> and the four children voted for it and nothing against me. I said, why? They said, Dad, there's no way you could win. You have more baggage than the skycaps out of the airport. <laughs> and I said, look, if I'm going to run, I'm going to win. And they said, oh, don't do it, Dad. You're going to get hurt. I said, I'm not going to get hurt. I said, I'm going to win. Well, I filed on a Friday. And uh, that Sunday, I went down to my driveway, picked up my newspaper, went to my little dinette table and opened it up. And the editorial was, anybody but Oscar for mayor. <laughs> well, that's a tough way to get involved in politics. And then the San Francisco Chronicle, they threw in their two cents and they said, and they had a big editorial, Las Vegas should not elect the barrister to butchers. <laughs> I said, what? I said, I don't even like San Francisco. What are they, what are they putting in their nose in my business? <laughs> All they have up there are a lot of clouds and a big old bridge. I mean, it, nothing. Well, I ran and I won and uh, had a and, great ride. And your odds were, were very low to win that, your first very one anyway. Low. Yeah, very low. You know, they didn't set the lines, so to speak, in Las Vegas or in political events. But in London, they did where they had these betting parlors. And I was a 17 to one underdog. And I, I won. I won rather handily. They said it was a landslide. But as time went on that my second election, I got, I think, 87 percent of the vote. Yeah. And on the third election. I got 86% of the vote, and I'm still looking for the other 14% who didn't vote for me. <laughs> got a bone uh, to pick with them. <laughs> now, uh, one question I was going to ask, you know, you, you represented Tony Spalatro quite a bit. Um, that, yeah, uh, yes, I did. I represented him for about 15 years. Yeah, so 15 years on and off. You know, doing that, I'm sure you guys had to become pretty close at, at any point, you know, representing some of these guys like, you know, Nikki Scarfo, Meyer Lansky, Tony Spilatra, did that, did that ever put you in under pressure or was you kind of just, you know, it was still, you knew you were good at your job or did you feel well, any kind no, of pressure? No pressure as far as people ask me, weren't you afraid uh, to be representing people like that? And the answer is no. I mean, that's clear because my clients, and I'm not saying this braggingly, but I was the only thing between them and uh, the electric chair or the gas chamber or life in prison. And they needed me. Right. And they saw no matter what, because I got some great referrals with cases I lost where a client was in prison. And they said, you know, call my lawyer. You wouldn't think that somebody in prison would be a referral for a lawyer, but uh, they knew I worked hard. And uh, no, uh, I, I kid people because uh, the government did not like me. And the government did not like my client or clients. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm not afraid of, uh, of anything happening to me of a physical nature because I usually have about 20 FBI agents following me all the time. <laughs> they even bugged your house at one point, didn't they? Yeah, they bugged my house. Wow. Uh, bugged my phone. Uh, they, uh, uh, in the movie Casino, you'll remember uh, that uh, there was a plane that was they flying out of the gas. Las Vegas, yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> over the golf course at the Las Vegas country club. And Spilaccio and I, we, we listened to too many uh, tapes involving him being picked up on wiretaps. And we would look up and there were parabolic mics there taking uh, uh, pictures of us. And we decided the only way to do it is to go outside. And it's plenty hot here. 
anybody who says it's a dry heat in Las Vegas, they're, they're, it may be dry, but it's hot. <laughs> and uh, we would talk in the golf course. And one day we're in the golf course uh, talking, and we hear the sputtering. We didn't know what it was. Sputtering of a plane. And this plane landed right in the pond there, I think on the 14th hole. I'm not sure. And uh, two guys who I recognize as being FBI agents uh, scurry out of it and run away. And uh, they left the plane there. And uh, the plane, uh, I don't know whatever happened to that. But uh, that I, I, I got tickled with that because uh, they went to all this trouble to listen to what we had to say. And we certainly weren't breaking the law. That's for sure. Well, I got to ask, did he really say $100 for whoever hit the plane? <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't say that. But, you know, what bothered me, and it still bothers me because it's happening now with this incident out of the Lake Mead uh, where a uh, uh, a barrel was found because yes. the lake is dieting. And they, uh, they opened the barrel and there was a dead body in it and there was a bullet hole in the back of the, uh, the deceased's uh, uh, head. And then and the newspapers here, and I, I would think they'd be more responsible. Uh, they're hy- hypothesizing that uh, Spalaccio killed whoever was in uh, this, this uh, barrel. And that uh, Spalaccio, uh, he um, he he left the scene in 1986 when he was killed and buried in a cornfield in Indiana, uh, not as depicted in the movie because it right, never it took different. Place, the movie said. Yeah, but um, he. Uh, they said he killed 27 people. And I, I said, you killed 27 people. I said, you guys are the biggest monkeys who ever lived. You are such, I'm talking about the FBI. I'm talking about the Metropolitan Police Department. I said, you're the biggest jerks who ever lived. If he killed 27 people, he never spent a day in jail. I, I said, and you're saying that I'm a bad guy. You wouldn't know how to put a, 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 a brown paper bag in jail. Now, I heard you say that when you were doing, as you said, you actually played their lawyer in Casino, that when you seen Joe Pesci, you know, put in his character, that it, it was it was uncanny how much he really looked like Spilotra. It was remarkable. It was remarkable. The first day that I went on the set, uh, they said, I go to the wardrobe. Uh, they do everything first class. Right. They had a beautiful trailer with a wardrobe and. Uh, seamstresses and uh, people who measured you and because uh, everything had to be the same day after day mm-hmm. the tie has to be the same way the suit has to be the same way and uh, I, I'm looking around uh, it was awesome you know I had never been in a movie in my life it's awesome and I see this fellow from the back and Tony had a left arm that sort of was bent and that's the only way I could describe it and he used to hold a little briefcase all the time in that arm and I'm looking and I'm saying, oh, my God, I know he's dead. <laughs> this is remarkable. I, I, I didn't know whether I had too much to drink before I got on the set because it was, I, you know, I'm a sort of a, lo- a little alcoholic. And <laughs> I, uh, uh, I said, maybe I shouldn't have had a drink before I came over here. But um, I see this fella and it turns out it's Joe Pesci looking just, just like Spilaccio. I mean, exactly like him. So one too many Bombay Sapphire jalapenos oh, that morning. Oh, you got that. You've done a research job. I mean, you probably were an FBI agent before you became a welder. Oh, I, I'm positive that. of it. <laughs> I am positive of this. So uh, to get off the mob guys for one second, you were really close to being involved in one of the biggest trials that I remember as a kid 
because while they were riding around in that Bronco, you actually got a call uh, to possibly get on the OJ case. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was um, I was up in Boston on a case. And in the hotel room, my wife had come to join me for the weekend up there. And uh, before I went up to Boston on this case, I had been uh, held in contempt uh, by a judge in Las Vegas because um, the grand jury, the grand jury doesn't know anything. The, the, the prosecutor wanted to know what my fee was in order to uh, hurt my client. And I said, I'm not going to give it to you. And they brought me in front of the judge and the judge said, yeah, give it to him. I said, no, I'm not going to give it to him. He says, you're not. Uh, I said, no, I'm not. He says, well, I'm, I'm going to throw you in jail. I said, you do what you have to do, judge. And uh, the prosecutor, who was not the nicest lady in the world, she said, we want Oscar or we want Goodman thrown in jail forthwith. I said, forthwith? I've been practicing in this court for years and you want me to go to jail forthwith? Uh, I said, Judge, let me at least appeal it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I knew I had the worst of it. I knew what the law was. But I wanted to make a lesson that it it really uh, it was going to hurt my client if I turned over these records because. Um, uh, it would help make another case against him if certain information was conveyed to a grand jury. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So he said, all right, I'll let you stay out pending your appeal. Uh, but uh, if you don't, if, if you don't win your appeal, you better bring your toothbrush. So I said, uh, thank you, your honor, and left the courthouse. And time goes by and I get the a result of the appeal that uh, it was against my client, against me, not my client, that I, I had to uh, turn over the records. And I said to my client, I said, I'm not turning him over, Chris. His name was Big Chris. He, he uh, Supposedly he was a consigliere for John Gotti. And I said, Chris, I'm not, I'm not going to turn over these records. He said, well, I don't want you going to jail. And I said, well, the man has to do what he has to do. So uh, uh, I get this is, I haven't told this story, I don't think, but I get a phone call from a jailer uh, of a facility that held federal prisoners. And they all knew me because I'm in the court all the time. They said, Oscar, uh, come over to the jail. I said, he hasn't, he hasn't formally ordered the, uh, the jailing yet. He said, come on over, I want to see you. So I went over to the jail and he says, don't worry about anything. He's had this set aside for you. They had a beautiful little cell. <laughs> and uh, they, they had a little t- television in the cell for me and a special place for me to eat in the cell. And he said, we're not going to lock the cell door. So don't worry. I said, I'm not worried. I, you know, I, I could use a rest. <laughs> so I uh, and then all the lawyers in town, defense lawyers, they got upset at this because I had a lot of friends out there. And they uh, went to court when I had to go to court and they had bullhorns and they uh, the judge's name was pro. And they were all screaming pro. Let the O. They called me the O, the O go. And uh, the prosecutor got, got up and she said, uh, you know, jail doesn't scare Oscar. Well, little did she know <laughs> because my wife and kids were there. They were ready to send me off to the to jail. They may have uh, wanted to get rid of me. Who knows? But um, uh, they're yelling, don't uh, don't send him to jail. Don't send him to jail. She says, jail doesn't scare Goodman. Uh, my... my Bile was up to my throat. I was, I, even though it would have a nice cell, jail scares it. I don't care who you are, jail scares you. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, uh, I said, uh, well, I'm ready, Judge. He said, well, they're saying the jail doesn't scare you, Mr. Goodman. So I think what we'll do is we'll fine you. 
uh, I'm going to fine you $25,000 today and $2,500 a day thereafter until you turn the records over. So I said, all right, judge. I said, do you take a master charge? He says, don't be a wise guy. I said, well, how am I supposed to pay? Well, no one has ever been fined like that. Not, not out my way. And he says, go to the clerk's office. They'll tell you how to do it. They had no idea. They thought it was a fine. And it's not a fine. It's, it's a, I don't know what it is. It's a coercive way to get people to pay money who are held in contempt. Yeah. And I, uh, I said, well, well, I'll write you a check. And my check's good for 25000 So I wrote a check for 25000 It comes a weekend. No one's in the courthouse. I said, I called the judge. I said, judge, uh, you know, I, I have to pay 2500 a day. We have a two-day weekend here. What do you want me to do? He said, we'll, we'll trust you to come in on Monday. You'll be able to make it up. So it got to a point where it was up to 50000 And my client came to me and he said, Oscar, he says, I, I, it's not fair to you. I said, well, uh, Chris, I guess the lesson's been learned. I haven't learned any lesson from it, but they know that I'm serious when I represent somebody. He says, okay, don't worry about it. Uh, give them the record. Well, they asked for a record and I turned it over and I knew what they were going to do because they've been doing it for years with me in order to make cases against the client or make cases against me for tax evasion. When I had my office receive cash, they always put down the amount, but they had anonymous as the person who was giving the cash to my office. So I turned this over and the judge looks at it and he smiles. And he calls the prosecutor up and he hands it to her. Well, we this isn't what we want to judge. We want to find out who, who brought the money to Oscar's office, to Goodman's office. The judge says, uh, you asked me for uh, the record? He gave you the record. Case dismissed. So um, that was the end. I didn't get my 50000 back, but um, uh, they knew I meant business. And it, 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 I make it sound like it's a game now. But it's a deadly game. It's a, a yeah. game where if the government could get away with a lot of the nonsense, and I use the word crap all the time, a lot of the crap that they get away with, with somebody calling them on it, this country doesn't have a chance. It's hard enough doing it the straight way. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I got a little bit, uh, even from prosecutors around the country or FBI agents, they said, you had a lot of guts to do that. We admire, we don't agree with you, but at least we admire you. And it was a it was a good experience for everybody. I was sort of looking uh, uh, to spend some time in that little jail. <laughs> so was that during the time when you got the call to to possibly go help out OJ or? Oh, oh so I'm telling you, it was that it was that situation that was over my head. So I'm I'm sitting in the hotel room, and I had the TV on, and I'm seeing I don't know what's happening. There's this white suburban that is on TV going down the highway, and I get a phone call in the hotel room. Is this Goodman? I said, it is. They said, we want to hire you. I said, who wants to hire me? Uh, Mr. O.J. Simpson. I said, they're telling me that Mr. O.J. Simpson is in that white suburban driving down the highway. I haven't heard from him. They said, well, he can't call you. We're calling you. Uh, we're his agent. We're calling you to represent him. So I said, you want to know something? It'd be a, a privilege. And he says, don't worry about privileges. We have money for you. We have a retainer. I said, I can't do that because I'm about to go to jail. I didn't know what was going to happen to me on the condemned. So I said, I, I can't do it. So I'm not saying they would have hired me, but I got the phone call. I got the second phone call. Uh, the first phone call went to uh, Howard Weitzman, who was uh, the DeLorean's uh, uh, yeah, lawyer. The, uh, yeah. the DeLorean's lawyer. 
And then uh, the third phone call, I believe, went to Robert Shapiro uh, and uh, Johnny Cochran. Uh, but I had the second phone call. At least that's what they told me, and they were ready to send me the money so we could have proven it by that. But, I, you know, you, you can't take on responsibilities that you have no way of fulfilling. And right. I had my own aggravation, my own troubles. And I said, well, that's a shame. I, uh, nobody could have done a better job than Cochran. Cochran, you know, if it don't fit, you have to acquit. Yeah. Uh, that, that's pretty good defense. And it's a shame because I knew Cochran and Cochran was opening up an office in Vegas and um, he invited me to the opening party and uh, we had a nice chat, but he was in a wheelchair. And I said, what's wrong, Johnny? He said, well, not too well. I think he had, he had brain cancer, if I'm not mistaken, and died yeah. shortly thereafter. He never got the law office open. And it would have been a pleasure and a privilege to have had him in the town that uh, I, I, I practiced in. Yeah, that was just a monumental case, especially at my age. That was kind of like the first big trial that I paid attention to because obviously I knew OJ, you know, a little bit from his football career, but, you know, a lot of the naked gun movies that he was in, you know, right. as Nordberg. So when this happened, I mean, it was on the news, you know, every day. So I was glued to the, the TV to figure out what happened. But yeah, that would have been a, a crazy case to be involved in because, I mean, people still talk about it to this day. Yeah, and he's living in Las Vegas now. Yeah, yeah, he's out yeah, there. Yeah, apparently, I, the thing that bugs me is uh, after he gets out of jail, um, out of prison, he goes to—I don't know the facts because I, I, I wasn't his lawyer—but um, he goes to collect uh, memorabilia apparently in a hotel room, and he uh, gets involved in a little—I think—a shoving or a pushing contest. At, wouldn't even be a misdemeanor. It was a, a, a Mickey Mouse, nickel dime type thing. And they charge him with like uh, battery and theft and all sorts of nonsense. And uh, once again, I, I don't forget, and I don't forgive either. Um, the judge who sentenced him on that, she, she basically sentenced him for the murder. Yeah. she gave, I think she gave him 17 years for, for nothing. Yeah. For nothing, we're trying to get his what he thought his own stuff back, and that made me sick. And that's the kind of thing that kept me going because I, I wouldn't let them get away with it. I wasn't uh, afraid uh, to go on TV or uh, talk to the media uh, and at least tell uh, the world what I saw. Um, they didn't want to hear it; they, they wanted to put a spin on it. But I, uh, I felt the public is entitled to uh, the truth, and at least it was the truth according to Oscar. And, that made me sick when I saw that. Yeah, that, that like you said, it, because he got off with the murder or was found not guilty. I'm not going to say he got off. He was found not guilty. Um, they try to basically, like you said, give him the, the murder charge for something, you know, very, very petty. And that happens yeah. a lot when people beat him, you know, for certain crimes. Oh, and, and come, That happens when a they, lot more they, than people know. <laughs> when they come after you, uh, you better kill the king. <laughs> because if you don't, the king's going to kill you. They're, they're going to spend whatever it takes to, to get you. And uh, I've had that experience many, many times that no. they just don't stop. I bet. So now somebody I want to mention too, that you were, uh, you had a lot of dealings with Billy Walters. Yes. Now I'm, I like to throw a, a few dollars down on some, some games here and there. I think you do too as well, but now Billy was a, uh, an interesting guy because he had the ability to literally move lines from Vegas, yeah. from Vegas. He's a, a brilliant guy. Uh, he came from a, a meager background. Um, one, a, a, not of wealth at all. Nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. 
I represent, represented him for years. Uh, he, uh, for, uh, I don't want to misstate this, but he was part of a group that was able to try to middle games. In other words, you get the line information and you bet both sides. So the worst that happens is, I guess, you lose one side, the juice, and uh, you, you, it was very successful. He made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Billy was a straight shooter. He um, he went on 60 Minutes yep, with uh, Lara Logan. And he told it the way he saw it. Uh, and she reported the way she saw it. Uh, and uh, he said, he told the truth about the government and uh, the way we're try- trying to abuse him. And then they, they just kept on coming after him. They seized money without just cause that sat in a, uh, a legal place uh, ready for him to go and get it for betting purposes. And he was very generous. He, uh, he had a son who had a disability and he gave uh, hundreds of thousands of do- millions of dollars uh, uh, to uh, an agency that took care of disadvantaged uh, youngsters uh, who had physical disabilities. Married to a lovely woman. Uh, uh, Susan was a, a great friend of my wife, Carolyn. And um, uh, ultimately, uh, they uh, they brought him to trial for illegal gambling, and he won it. Uh, and then uh, they indicted him uh, uh, based on, uh, I, I, I uh, what, what would it be called? Insider information. Once yeah. again, in my opinion, uh, Mickey Mouse and the government uh, leaked I believe uh, this was uh, proven to a moral certainty. They leaked information to the media, I think the New York Times, and it muddied Billy up. Uh, and uh, the jury came back. As he said, it was the biggest bet he lost. Uh, and he got, a, I thought, an outrageous sentence for what he had done. And uh, uh, he's back. Spoke to him. Oh, I guess, uh, when, well, I tell you exactly when I spoke to him. I spoke to him on Kentucky Derby Day. Mm-hmm. I gave him a call just to say, you know, one of the nicest weekends I ever spent is he treated me and my wife and a couple other couples uh, to uh, the Kentucky Derby. And we went down there and I'll tell you, he knew how to do it right. We got off the plane. Uh, I think it was a private plane. I'm not sure. Got off the plane and there was a, um, oh, like a high ranking officer from the Kentucky uh, troopers uh, greeting us on the tarmac driving us to our hotel and then taking us to all the parties. Phyllis George, who was a Miss America, married to John Brown, who was the governor. Uh, they were uh, uh, they were our hosts at a party, took us to all the uh, famous stables that you hear about where the breeding takes place. And uh, uh, we sat at the, at the finish line and I was sitting next to George Steinbrenner and uh, Henry Gonzalez, the congressman. And it was, I was like a big shot uh, because people knew me down there. I had just uh, won a case for the grandson of Happy Chandler, who was the commissioner of uh, Major League Baseball and then the governor himself of Kentucky. I, I got a not guilty in his case. And so everybody knew there's a lawyer from Vegas is what they said. I had the best weekend of my life. <laughs> uh, I told uh, Billy, I, I like to think of the fond days, not the days of the fight, but the, being able to smell the roses a little bit. And uh, we sure smelled at that Kentucky. Uh, you should have you ever been there? I have never been. No. If you can, 
you got to go because it's, uh, I've been to all, I've been to the Super Bowl. I've been to the World Series. I've been here. I've been there. World Championship fights. There's no spectacle like uh, the Kentucky Derby. All the beautiful women with their beautiful hats and beautiful dresses and the pomp and circumstance and uh, all the hype. Um, th- those are the days of Baffert. <laughs> we, we don't have that anymore. How, uh, how long did they wind up giving Billy when they finally got him? I think they gave him eight years and uh, wow. he, he got out um, uh, on a, it wasn't a presidential bar, pardon at the time, but he got out uh, because of the COVID. Right. And they said, you'll do your time at home. And then he spent it as a custody at, at home. And uh, knowing Billy, he had a nice house. Yeah. Uh, you know, a nice house. And uh, uh, word came with the President Trump that the President Trump pardoned him. So, Billy doesn't have any record, which is a wonderful thing for Billy. Yes, no, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, with everything that we've talked about with you from, you know, your lawyers and dealing with the mob guys to being mayors, you bumped heads with a few presidents. You bumped heads with Barack Obama. uh, He had some choice words to say about Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, I had a fight with uh, President Obama. Uh, He was really wrong in what he did. He was speaking to a group and uh, I don't know why he said this. Uh, Sometimes I why he did a lot of things, but he said um, people should not spend their money uh, going to Las Vegas. Uh, they should be spending that money on college education, and uh, they shouldn't travel to Las Vegas. Well, I was the chairman of the convention authority at the same time that I, I was the mayor, and uh, I said somebody told me that the president said something bad about Las Vegas. I, that can't be. They said, yeah, that, he said something bad about Las Vegas. I said, can't be. Uh, I said, did anybody uh, hear the president say anything about the guy raises his hand and he says, yeah, the president said people shouldn't come to Las Vegas. Well, I got hot. And I said, I'm going to write him a letter. And I, I was wrong here. I, I said, I want an apology. Well, a, a mayor shouldn't ask the president of the United States for an apology, but that's what I said. I said, I want an apology. It's like saying to somebody um, uh, from Detroit. Uh, I don't want you buying a Ford yeah. or from Florida. I, I don't want you uh, uh, buying oranges. Uh, you, you can't tell people not to come to Las Vegas. And uh, I, I then said, I, I used the wrong word. I think I said, you have to explain yourself, Mr. President. Uh, tell people that you didn't mean what you said there. Uh, and I didn't hear back from him. Well, on Memorial Day of that year, uh, as the mayor, my wife did it yesterday, uh, we visited uh, different cemeteries uh, to pay our respects to the fallen, those who made the greatest sacrifice during the wars. And, uh, got through about 11 o'clock. It was a beautiful day. And I have a koi pond in my backyard. And at the time that I, I, I really know how to relax, and I, I relaxed by my koi pond and had my cell phone with me and had some music playing in the background. I had my books with me studying for a case. and um, Phone rings. I answer it. Uh, Mayor Goodman, I said, yep. Yeah. He, he said, this is, uh, he called himself a congressman. This, this is Congressman Rahm Emanuel, uh, the president's chief of staff. Well, I'm respectful. I said, uh, what can I do for you, sir? He said, well, the president heard that you're not going to come out to the airport and greet him when he visits Las Vegas. I said, absolutely. The president's 100% right. He's got good hearing. Uh, that, <laughs> that is exactly what I said. I wouldn't go to the airport. Unless he apologized, I use the word. He says, what's the problem? So I explained to him what the problem was. 
He says, well, I think uh, I could do something about that. I said, if you, could, if you could do something about that and have him apologize, then I'll, I'll go to the tarmac. I, I let bygones uh, be bygones. Well, apology's not coming. The apology's not coming. And I get a phone call from Emmanuel, and he says he's going to apologize when he hits the, the ground. I said, I'm taking you at your word. So the, the plane lands, I'm there. And you know the way uh, President uh, Obama walks, he sort of goes from side to side and sort of, uh, he, he walks down the steps that way and he looks at me and he says, oh, you're the wise guy mayor. I said, what do you mean I'm the wise guy mayor? He says, well, everybody says you're a wise guy and look at the suit you're wearing. Uh, I says, it's a nice suit. He says, yeah, it's a real nice suit. I said, you owe us an apology, Mr. President. And he said, I'm not going to apologize. I said, well, I'm out here because I was told that you would straighten the record out and tell people that Las Vegas is a nice place to come to. He says, well, we'll worry about that later on. Never got the apology. Never got the uh, what he, his office said he was going to do. And uh, then when my wife became the mayor, he pulled the same thing. Well, she is a little more forgiving, I guess. Uh, he asked her to uh, come and, and greet him. And she said, well, the mayor should greet you no matter uh, what you did. And the two of us, uh, we've been married 60 years, uh, six oh years, uh, come June the 6th. <clears throat> uh, very few fights. Uh, but we have one over this. I said, you can't let the man get away with this. Well, she went out to the airport and they shook hands and he, he made it sound like it was a big joke. It was no big joke as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So I, I, he is not my favorite president. <laughs> Absolutely. I can, I can tell. Um, and I know you say you, you and Trump had a pretty decent relationship though. Y'all didn't butt heads quite, quite as often as I don't know. No, no. As a matter of fact, um, the city acquired, uh, 61 acres of land right in the heart of the downtown. Mm-hmm. You can imagine. And a beautiful piece of property, except it was a, an old railroad site and it had to be remediated. Um, which, you know, just cost you some money. You dig it out and you replace it with clean dirt. And, um, I, but there was a railroad track running right through it. And, uh, uh, president Trump came out and I invited, he, he was uh, opening up the Trump towers here and I invited him to come down and help me out with my redevelopment. And I, I didn't really know him at the time. And, uh, he came, uh, he came downtown. We went over to the railroad track and I says, you see what I mean? He says, Oscar, he says, I, I would like to develop this property. I said, you know, you built a beautiful product, but I want eclectic architecture. I want everything to be a little different than everything else. And, you know, even though your stuff is great, it, it's sort of all great. And, and I, I want to have Art Deco. I want to have uh, just different kinds of buildings that, that uh, it will be an architectural uh, place that people can come to. Uh, Frank Gehry designed Brain Institute, all of that. And uh, I said, I'm going to pass, but I appreciate it. But how, how can I take care of this railroad track? He said, well, my dad, uh, his father, uh, was a developer of real property back in the New York, New Jersey area. And he said he had to fight with the concept of railroad tracks wherever he was building. And he said, you know, he looked at the railroad track as a river. And I said, by golly, I started looking at it as a river. And uh, the river to the west, the 
river to the east and started to develop the river to the east and people around town said, look what he's doing down there. Uh, and the, all the hotels in the downtown area, they began improving themselves. I wouldn't have gone into some of these places for fear of getting a secondary lung disease. Uh, the smoke was so bad. Uh, but they, they started to clean it up. And then the people on the west side, they said, look what the guy's doing. Uh, the city's involved. They have money down there. They're putting, putting their efforts there. Uh, and they started to develop the, the west side of the property. And now it's the hottest piece of property in town. We've got, it's a beautiful beach. You have to come out my way. Absolutely. I'll tell you yeah. this, I have a little restaurant. I have a little restaurant called I was going to say that. You've got a restaurant out there I need right, to try and, out, and too. the Plaza Hotel. And I hang out there. And uh, it's the only restaurant in the world that has a statue of uh, Tony Spilatro and Oscar Goodman in it. <laughs> a life-size statue. And everybody who come, comes to the restaurant, they rub the statue. I don't know whether they're rubbing for <laughs> luck or giving me a spanking, but uh, they come up there. The best steaks in town. Oscars, uh, I, I'm allowed to say this on a, your, your program, beef, booze, and broads. There you that go. Was our, that was our motto. Beef, booze, and broads and great steaks and just fun. And, um, you, you owe it to yourself because everybody has a wonderful time coming down there. Absolutely. No, uh, Vegas is on my list to, to get out there real soon because I've never been as much as I like to gamble. I've never been to Vegas as crazy as that sounds. Well, it does sound crazy, but I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Listen, I'm going to let you get out of here because I know you're a busy guy, but I got two questions I want to end with real quick. Number one, I just recently done an interview with a guy that spent four years in prison because they thought that he killed his wife. Uh, he got home. He found his wife stabbed. He made the phone call, called 911. Immediately, they pinned it on him. They wound up being the woman that actually dropped her off at her home because she had forged uh, insurance documents to become the beneficiary, which they suppressed in court. Uh, so the conversation that he and I had, prosecutorial immunity, do you think there's ever a chance for that to go away? Because these people basically have carte blanche to do really whatever they want and have hold no repercussion for it. Do you think there's a chance that could be erased? It better, it better, because I had a client, and he's a friend, and uh, uh, from Boston. And they said he was a member of the Patriarch of Crime family up there. Talking about Vinny Ferrara, right? Yeah, and, and talking about Vinny, and Vinny is a hell of a guy. Uh, the prosecutor has a a conference with other prosecutors and calls him an animal, and that stuck with him throughout uh, his life, basically. And they wouldn't say it to his face. Uh, his uh, sister was a nun and they didn't call her a penguin. Right. Uh, and they, you know, they called Vinny the animal and uh, a, a cop uh, lied and the prosecutor lied and they didn't tell anybody. And we made a deal and I, I hated deals, but there were three murder cases against Vinny. And uh, in order to save him from going through these murder cases where they were using the death penalty in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, we, we made a deal and um, uh, Vinny, he's a man, he, he took the deal. And then we found out afterwards uh, that uh, the prosecutor lied and knew uh, he lied and he knew the cop lied. And uh, the judge went out of his mind, a good judge, and he let Vinny out. But Vinny had done 18 years based on these lies, 18 years. And uh, the prosecutor asked that the uh, the, the judge wanted the prosecutor fired, wouldn't even uh, listen to them, w wanted him uh, uh, censured. 
government wouldn't listen. What did a paper in the file? Uh, so this guy would never be able to, wouldn't even do that. This this guy's walking around like nothing happened and, and uh, nothing uh, was done to stop this from happening again. And that makes, it makes me sick. It made me sick. Now it makes me sick. And yeah, it, it'll change when enough of these big shot uh, politicians uh, see uh, how the system works. They taste it a little bit themselves. Yeah, uh, they won't let them get away with this kind of crap. So my answer is yes, and, and it's the right thing. They, sh- if they do their job right, that's all. All my clients wanted was to get a fair trial without prosecutorial misconduct. Have the United States Constitution in play. No one complained that they got those things. It's not that hard to do. Right. But uh, the ends justified the means for these people. And uh, I had no use for him. No, I, I agree. That's something that needs to get out of here because that, like, like you said, they can basically have carte blanche to do with they, whatever they want and have no repercussions for it at the end None. of the day. So None. yeah, that, that needs to be something that needs to be addressed and taken care of. And, and the last question I'll have, you know, while you were a lawyer, cause I know you, you're still a lawyer, but you don't just practice anymore. Right. That's right. I have a son who's a lawyer and I have another son who's a judge. So, okay. uh, yeah, well, there's you enough still, good. You still got it in the family, <laughs> right? Was there ever a case that you didn't take that, in retrospect, you look back and wish you had? Let me put it this way: I don't, I, I don't want to be uh, facetious, but uh, I, I'm not a, a moralist. Um, if a client could afford me, uh, I would take their case if they could pay me. So. Uh, I never, I never, uh, I never looked in another guy's pocket. Um, I, uh, the only time I would ever turn down a case is like we're in the OJ situation where I had other issues facing me. I couldn't even get involved in thinking about taking it. I can't think there would be a case that I wouldn't take if, uh, uh, because I, I never I put it, no, never is a, a bad word. I rarely let a client take the stand. I was always better. Uh, to make my closing argument that he was or she was uh, able to withstand cross-examination. So uh, uh, it was not a, a situation where I'd be supporting perjury or anything of that nature. Uh, and uh, usually the only time I wanted to hear from the client was um, if they had an alibi. I wanted them to tell me, you know, they were in uh, South Carolina at the time they were charged with doing something in Las Vegas. I want to hear that. But I really don't want them to tell me that they didn't do what the government charged them with, because most people don't even know uh, what the uh, what the, the charge is all about. They get arrested and uh, uh, they want to find out uh, what the story is. And uh, the person who, uh, uh, let's say, uh, when you go home today, let's say you're, you're home, you, you see your front door knocked down and you see your, your drawers. Uh, uh, open and your, your clothes strewn all over the place. Uh, do you have nine nine one one there? Oh yeah, is that what you? So you call nine one one and you say this is, and you tell them who you are, uh, and you say, uh, I've been what? Robbed. Wrong. You've been burglarized, and there's a big difference. There's like a fifteen year difference between a robbery and a burglary. A burglary is when somebody enters your home with the intent to commit a felony. A robbery is when they take something from you by force or threat of force. So sometimes when you tell the jury that they go like this, that they're, they're, they're in for a ride. Mm. 
Wow. That's a good little tidbit there. I did not know that. Well, when you get your law license, you'll be able to use it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, well, look here. If, if any of our audience members found this video uh, entertaining and informative, which I'm sure they did, tell them real quick before we get out of here where they can go to find your book, like we said, From Mob Lawyer to Mayor of Las Vegas, Only in America. Where can they find that? I imagine they could get it at any bookstore. They get it on Amazon, get it on Barnes & Noble. And they could come out to the restaurant, Oscars at the Plaza. And we have a whole bunch of them out there. People want to buy them when they're out there. And not not hard to find. And it's a paperback now, too. So okay. they get a kick out of it. Uh, it's the kind of book you can read in three or four hours and enjoy the little vignettes that I, I, I put in it. And it's all true. Okay. Well, great. Well, we'll put a link for it on Amazon to our show notes in the, uh, in the bottom there. People want to go click on that and get it for sure. Now I'm personally, when I get my uh, chance to get out there to Vegas, I'm going to come to Oscars. We're going to get the booze, the broad, the steaks, and I'll throw one more B in there. I'll get the book too while I'm out there. Well, that's very good. I'm not going to promise the broad, so I'm not in that business. But the rest of the stuff, I'll be able to take care of you. All right, my friend. Look, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you stopping by the show today. I've, I've had a blast, and I hope you did as well. Very good. And if you have a link to this, if you send it to me, I'll, I'll put it up on the, uh, my wife's uh, um, uh, Facebook or whatever she uses. All right. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Wade. That was mob lawyer turned mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Oscar, we appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Well, boy, oh boy, what a fantastic interview that was with Mr. Goodman. You know, he doesn't do a ton of these interviews. I'm very grateful that he sat down with me and gave us his story. What a life he led. I mean, you know, was almost involved with the OJ Simpson trial, you know, given, uh, getting in beefs with Barack Obama, you know, talking deals with Donald Trump, you know, representing all these reputed alleged mobsters. We want to throw that a word alleged in there, alleged mobsters, you know, what a life, you know, you can't really ask for anything better. It's filled with thrills and ups and downs and, you know, him standing his ground about to get thrown in jail himself. So what a guy, and I hope to get out to Las Vegas soon. Hope to get out there and check out his restaurant, Oscars. That man promised me a steak and some uh, booze, so we're going to see if he holds up that end of the deal. I hope I can make it out there soon, Oscar, to take you up on that. Folks, go get that man's book. If you enjoyed this episode, go pick up his book, From Mob Lawyer to Las Vegas Mayor, Only in America. We have the link for it. You can pick it up on Amazon or really wherever books are sold, but we have the Amazon link right there in the show notes. You can go down there, one click, purchase that. It's on Audible, Kindle, wherever you want to get your books, however you want to get your books. I'm an Audible guy myself. I can't lie. I'm a little bit lazy, and I like to have them read to me, so what can I say? But I am a busy guy, so that's my you know excuse for that type of thing. When you're in the gym or whatever you're doing, riding in the car, you can just be read your favorite book, whatever that may be. So I'm a big, big fan of Audible. Now, what I'm also a big fan of are reviews. People, if you're enjoying this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcast. You know, leave us a five-star review on there. Tell us how great we are over here at Crime and Entertainment. If you're listening on Spotify, you know, like us on there. Uh, go on over to YouTube. Give us a subscribe on there. You know, leave a comment. Drop us a comment. We'll talk to you on there, too. Head on over to the Facebook pages. Give us a like and follow on there. We're also on Instagram. Follow us on there as well. We're not asking for money out of your pocket, good people. We're just asking for a little bit of love, like, 
share and uh, you know share it with your friends please you know if you got a clip we like if a lot of your friends you think you might would like it share it to your social media that would really really help us out over here at crime and entertainment and ladies and gentlemen that about does it i am hollywood wade that was mob lawyer las vegas mayor oscar goodman and unfortunately we are out of time tune in next week for an all-new episode of crime and entertainment